Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Dave Bottom, the Chief Information Officer of the Homeland Security Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. So this is a first for me. I don't think I've ever had someone on from the Office of Intelligence and Analysis. So let's just start at the beginning. I always like when I have a new CIO come on, what do you do at, at the Office of Intelligence Analysis? Or should I say, what does your agency do? I work for the Undersecretary for Intelligence and Analysis in, in the department. The gentleman that's, that's currently in the seat is a gentleman by the name of Dave Glaue. Dave works for Secretary Nielsen. So you know we sit in the office of the secretary. And, and the way that I think about uh, Dave's job is in three, three big parts. First part of the of the job is to make sure that the department's leadership and and I should really say decision makers have the intelligence that they they need to make operational decisions each and every day. So as you can imagine, the traditional intelligence functions of putting a book together, making sure that the secretary and the leadership are, are briefed, understand what what the issues of the day are, is is really a significant part part of the responsibility. In order to do that, there's uh, the second part of the job, which is managing. You know, the, what I call the functional management of the department's intelligence enterprise. As you can guess, each of the components, uh, components in this case would be Transportation Security Administration, Customs and Border Protection, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, have their own office of intelligence. And, and as you'd guess, uh, the, the, those offices are really focused on the mission of TSA or CBP or ICE. But the undersecretary is responsible for coordinating and managing all of those offices as an intelligence enterprise. And the third part of that is something that's probably not as well known, but the undersecretary is responsible for information sharing, uh, not only across the Department of Homeland Security, but between DHS and, and our partners, whether those are partners in the uh, intelligence community or the Department of Defense or um, state and local and tribal governments or the private sector. So making sure that the department's information is shared securely and in, in a safeguarded way. So many ways, what the OIA is kind of being the conduit from all the other directorates in terms of the intelligence that they gather, that they're looking at, and you're kind of bringing it all together that you can then share even broad, more broadly across the department. And again, as you said, across the IC or across DOD. Yep. And the way I like to look at it is, is we're a bridge and we're a value-added bridge, right? So making sure if, if we do share from state, local, private sector through the department to the IC, we're adding the appropriate context in terms of what should be gleaned from that information and, and vice versa. So if we're sharing an unclassified uh, intelligence product with our state and local partners, we're also providing that context in terms of, of, of what that product really, really means uh, you know, from, from, from the IC. Let's talk about your job a little bit as the chief information officer of the Office of Intelligence Analysis. How do you support that broad mission? In those three ways. As, as we get the intelligence ready each and every day to make sure our analysts, uh, the Office of Intelligence has a cadre of analysts that their focus every day is, is making sure that the intelligence gets out the door. So making sure that our analysts have the necessary data and tools in order to produce that intelligence, that, that's a big part of the job. The second big part of the job is we manage for the intelligence enterprise, the department's top secret uh, secure uh, compartment and information network or TSSCI network across the department that ties together uh, the intelligence enterprise and provides that linkage back to the national intelligence community. So a lot of uh, effort is dedicated to that each and every day. And then the third part of it is is, is making sure that the uh, undersecretary in his role as the information sharing executive has the uh, processes and the tools and the ability to make uh, those, those key information sharing decisions each and every day. So three parts to the job, so so three parts to, to the CIO portfolio. 
one of the things when you talk about managed intelligence enterprise, make the, the network, the, the classified network, that's the classified network for TSA, for CBP, for everyone, or is it just for your office, the OIA? It's for everyone. So, so we do provide that classified network for all of the uh, offices of intelligence uh, you know, uh, across the department. Does that in some ways make your job easier or harder? Because are you? I'm sure you talk to the TSA CIO, Russ Roberts, all the time. I'm sure you have to talk with the CBP CIO all, all the time. And each of them have different needs and different requirements. Or are you able to kind of shepherd that into kind of cone and bring it up to that the final net, what, what the final classified network looks like? Sure. And, and, and it actually gets a little bit more complicated to that because the at the classified space, we also have to comply with the Department of Defense and, and the, the national intelligence community rules and regulations and processes. So, you know, that the balance there is, you know, work with each of the component CIOs, whether it's Russ or Phil or um, Mike Brown in term, at, at ICE to make sure that we're dealing and delivering on their specific uh, requirements and for the things that, though, that we can do in common. You know, we, we do those those things that 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 are in common. So so that's the the balance that we try to strike uh, as as we work that across the department. And at the same time, how often are you guys in touch with, for instance, John Sherman at ODNI or some of the other intelligence community CIO types, whether DIA or NSA or CIA? So so the battle over there is is, is I'm having an IC meeting every day. In fact, I just left one. So it's not only the chief information officers, but it's also the chief data officers uh, across all of the IC elements. You know, the, the trend right now is, is to move away from really systems and, you know, working, you know, the traditional IT things, like, which are still important. But, you know, really now the, the focus is turning more, as, as John, I think, talked about it, that John Sherman talked about at DOTUS, is, you know, that, that turn to, to, towards more data and, and how, we're, how we're sharing data. So I'd say that, you know, there's a, certainly a daily discussion within the department on, on a department, those department topics, but also daily with, with our IC partners as well. Fascinating because a lot of times, you know, from a observer's perspective, you don't think of DHS as part of, not as part of the IC, because I think we have, but as part of that broader community. A lot of times when we talk about the, the IC, it's, it is always, you know, the CIA, the FBI, and DHS gets thrown in there, but not, I don't think your office does. So let's maybe talk a little bit more about your office, the makeup of your office, federal employees, contractors. Uh, I know budget may be tough to talk to, but maybe give us what you can about what your IT budget is. So for my office in, in particular, it's about 60 or so federal employees. That The number fluctuates, that, as you can guess, you know, depending on what, what, what day of the week it is. The you know, number of contractors is about double that. So, you know, a pretty good good size workforce relative to, to the office itself in terms of the office of, uh, uh, of intelligence and analysis. So pretty good mix, but not, I think, the same types of percentages that you would see uh, in, in any of the other CIA offices within the IC. And from just real quick on the budget side, I know it's sensitive, but what can you tell us about it? Anything? It's hard to talk about specific numbers, but but let me talk about the, the three types of budgets that 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 we manage for for our customers and that that's and that's what it really comes down to so so the first budget that we manage is our appropriated budget from from the department and that's really dedicated towards going back towards that intel production of intelligence mission for the department the second part of that is is that um, you know we manage a working capital fund for all of the components again going back to to russ or mike or Bill in terms of what their uh, requirements are for that that top secret SCI network. So we manage a working capital fund that everybody pays into, and people have this odd expectation when they pay into something they should get a service back. So so you know we we manage that uh, budget on, on behalf of our teammates in, in the department. 
And then the third one is back, you know, more and more now as we're doing specific things, uh, what we call reimbursable funding. So for services that we need to to provide for a component or some some other element within the intelligence community, dollar you know the dollars come into uh, my office and, and we provide the, provide the the necessary services. I think the working capital fund is one of those things we're, we're hearing a lot about through the Modernizing Government Technology Act. I'm not sure how much you, more you can talk to it, but basically what happens is. At the beginning of the year, you have a set of priorities, and everyone says, okay, that these priorities are going to cost X, and that's divided by the number of people who are going to benefit from those priorities, and, and that that makes up, generally speaking, your working capital fund. I, I know I'm simplifying it, but... I mean, for us, I, I think that, that's absolutely right. For, for us, it's a couple of different things. But back to your point about the beginning of the year, you know, for first, first things first, let's decide on what the scope of services is going to be in, in that working capital fund. For us, within the top secret environment, it says, well, what are those services that everybody has to use? Identity management, network, enterprise management, video teleconferencing, all of those, those common services, if you will, that people are going to use. So, so how do we uh, make sure that we're, those services are going to be available? Do we need to plan for recapitalization of hardware, for example? So you know, one of the priorities, of course, is, is migrating to Windows 10, which... As, as you'd imagine, there's, there's a lot of back-end type of infrastructure that needs to be upgraded. So let's decide on what the scope of, of needs are for, for a particular fiscal year. Then you know, how do we you know, fairly, and of course that's a matter of debate most often, right? how, how do we fairly allocate those costs? Two metrics that we use. One, one is the number of actual desktops uh, that, that are on the network. And then what, what are the number of, of accounts? As you can imagine, you know, across the department, you know, there's a requirement to work 24 by 7. So it might be more than one person uh, that uses a workstation. So so that's why we use both both desktops and, and, and accounts. All right. Very good. And real quick, your background, you've been the CIO for how long? I've uh, been in the chair about two and a half years, uh, maybe a little shy of two and a half years. Before this position was, was actually at IBM, uh, ran the, the go to market for the intelligence community. And then b- before IBM, I was the uh, director of IT services for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Uh, for a number of years, and then uh, a lot of roles at that NGA, and before that, uh, I was an, a, a CIA officer. So fascinating. So you were in government, you left government, and now you came back. It's kind of the, the way people expect to happen over the next you know, 15, 20 years, that people kind of dip the foot here, dip their foot here. So uh, you're, you're a good example of that. So oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Dave, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump into some of your priorities. My guest is Dave Bottom, the Chief Information Officer of the Homeland Security Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Dave Bottom, the Chief Information Officer of the Homeland Security Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. So, Dave, before break, we're getting to know you and your mission and your office a little bit. Let's just jump right into your priorities. What are you hoping to get done over the next six or nine months? Certainly uh, a lot of priorities in the hopper. I put them into the categories of you know, keeping our infrastructure at, at pace and making sure that we're, we're making the right modernization decisions. And then, of course, making sure that we're doing the, the things required for, for, for mission. So in the, in the modernization aspects... You know, migrating to Windows 10, which which is a big focus, uh, not only of the department, but DOD and, and the IC as well, and make sure that, that we stay in compliance with where Dr. Zangardi's targets are for, for the Department of Homeland Security and where John Sherman's targets are, are for the intelligence community. Part of that then uh, gets to adopting shared services. So as you know, the intelligence community has signed an agreement with Microsoft for 
uh, Azure and Office 365 on, within the top secret environment. So plan to migrate to that and adopt those shared services and then uh, continue the uh, adoption of shared services uh, from, from my site that, that started before I got into the chair, but uh, was, was really one of the reasons I was asked to come to, to DHS was to accelerate that. So you know, adopting uh, commercial cloud services uh, that CIA is the executive agent for, and then uh, IC GovCloud, uh, which another IC partner is responsible for. We're building new capabilities as, as we're tailoring and, and tuning for the things that mission requires. Uh, all of the new capabilities uh, that we're building for, for our partners are, are, are on those services. So, um, you know, believe it or not, one of the, our goals is and objectives is to uh, make sure that we have those services instrumented in a way where if we do have an issue, you know, we, we can do the, the right amount of troubleshooting and fault isolation to, to get service up, up quickly. Much harder to do that in a shared services environment than if uh, if all of the services are, are in, within your own data center. So, so that you know that that's our other focus area is making sure that we're doing the right instrumentation uh, as as we move to adopt adopt those shared services. You know the the other thing, of course, is as we adopt uh, those shared services, particularly the the cloud capabilities, that that's a huge enabler for us to you know really accelerate our adoption of machine learning. And, and for DHS, you know, particularly in, in our space, that's really doing the things that tease out patterns and, and patterns, behaviors that, that, we, that are anomalies or threats that uh, QR analysts to, to, to go look deeper. You know, without the services that um, the IC is providing on, under EyeSight, that would really be cost prohibitive and, and take us a, an extremely long time to do. Uh, but we're in the position now where, uh, where you know, we're able to adopt those services quickly, you know, to deploy the tools. Uh, get the data in there uh, so so we can uh, enable our, pat our our analysts to tease out if I if I can use that term tease out the patterns that re re require uh, deep deeper insight. So yeah, that that's really our our focus for for the machine learning uh, aspects as, as we're moving forward. All right, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's back up for a second. Talk Windows 10. So you have two two if you will people asking you to do two different things, right? You have Dr. Zingardi at DHS says get to Windows 10 by, I think it's uh, the end of the fiscal it's year. end of the fiscal year. But you have the IC, John Sherman, saying get to Windows 10 by. Yeah, so, so we're targeted. <laughs> how, <do you> balance? <laughs> how, do, how do we balance? <laughs> well, um, well, Dr. Z, I mean, you know, yeah. my buddy here, John Sherman, give me six more months. And, well, but, you know, or vice versa. How, how, do, you, how do you balance Well, actually, that? That, that, that's about right. So, so we compromised and said December. So, you know, we're, 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 we're targeting towards the, 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 the end of the calendar year uh, to, to, put it, to, put, to put that into place. Fair enough. Now, is this more difficult for you guys because you have the classified and unclassified networks, or is Windows 10 just for the unclass? Well, what, what we're taking is, is the unclassified image and then doing the, the necessary tailoring or customization, if you will, to, to make it work within the top secret environment. So, so there is an additional level of customization that, that has to happen, but both on the desktop and, and on the backend infrastructure, whether it's your Active Directory services, your, your email servers, uh, to, 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 make that, to make that image work. Generally speaking, I know, again, there may be some sensitivities. Have you found that the move to Windows 10 has gone fairly smoothly? Or is there any, generally speaking, hiccups, obstacles that you would maybe warn other CIOs who are listening to watch out for? You know, we, we've discovered, I think, all of the things that the other CIOs have, have, have discovered. Uh, you know, one of the benefits of being in the department is that, you know, our, our team is in Coast Guard, who are also, they actually have an additional level of complexity of having to be responsive to, to the DOD CIO. So, you know, that really, I think the big change for, for Windows 10 is not only to get it implemented, 
uh, but certainly, you know, you know, moving away from these these big drops, right? There, there, there won't be a Windows 11 or a Windows 12. There'll just be subsequent updates to Windows 10, and you know, moving to that, you know, current baseline minus two. So that this this consistent upgrade methodology that that we have to put in place to to keep current, which makes perfect sense from a cyber standpoint, but but is a change from from how we've handled O and M of networks before. When you talk about Windows 10, is one of the big challenges I've heard over the past is applications, ensuring the applications work with the new operating system beyond Office 365, of course. Or is that a concern for you guys? Are you doing a lot of testing and test and development and to ensure that those applications, you know, mission critical ones, don't don't break? Applications is a concern. So, so it's two two or three part strategy there. First off is move as much as we can into the browser and, and, and make it a make it a browser compatibility issue, not necessarily an application issue. So in, in large part, that's taking care of a lot, a lot of our issues. One thing that we were surprised about uh, that we didn't anticipate was, was scripts. So, you know, do scripts or macros um, actually within the previous version of Microsoft Office, you know, do they work in, in the Windows 10 version? So that was something we weren't able to test uh, across the board because we we do allow you know folks to develop their own scripts and macros for for their for their business purposes. So we've actually spent a fair amount of time fixing those uh, within the Windows 10 version of, of Microsoft Office. But the other applications um, we haven't run 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 into that mostly because we've we've transitioned that functionality to apps and capabilities with, within the browser. And just to put a finer point on that, when you talk about apps in the browser, you're talking about basically software as a service or where the app's at least riding somewhere in, in you get to it through an app, a browser versus being the, the client is on your desktop or the client is on a server somewhere. Yes. So, so you know, the, and the beauty of that is, I mean, you still have the issue of, you know, is it Firefox? Is, is it Edge? Is it, um, you know, some, some other browser? Being able to just to configuration manage the version of the browser it is a much easier exercise than managing to different applications. So is it Internet Explorer or is it, because the government always gets that bad rap that you're so far behind, or is it Netscape? Netscape. <laughs> Netscape. <laughs> so which one are you using? I mean, so, so we're using, but believe it or not, we're using three. So, so we still support Internet Explorer. We support uh, Microsoft Edge, which is the, which is the new browser. Uh, but most often I notice that as, as we develop capabilities, uh, that those are, you know, Fire, Firefox is, is preferred. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Let's also jump into uh, one of the other issues that you talked about, shared services. You talked about you're jumping into using the Office 365 Azure for top secret environment. What's that entail? What does that mean in terms of, of, of the shared service for you guys? So so I think that's a couple, if I unpack that, I, I put it in the three categories. Um, you know, certainly is adopting the capabilities that come with, with Office 365. In some cases, that means that we need to change our business processes. Uh, as you can guess, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, a lot of organizations, uh, INA and DHS, are, are no different. We've tailored a lot of our business practices in, into our IT. Uh, as we're adopting common services, and Office 365 is a wonderful example of that, in order to get the, the bang for the buck there, we need to make sure that our processes are, are, are common so, so and we're supporting the, the product as it's delivered uh, by Microsoft. So, so a little bit of business process reengineering there. Uh, the other part of that is this the, this move away as we're adopting a, a shared services, which is really buying time, is um, you know changing how we how we budget. You know the traditional way to to budget and allocate costs, and we touched on this a little bit earlier for the working capital fund is you know it's hardware and software buys, perpetual licenses, pieces of equipment uh, that that you can amortize over time. So you know a high cost of entry, and then you know the cost would trail off over time until you hit a recap spike. 
what we're trying to do is even out that spend. So we, we, we're spending the same amount every year or, or every quarter. Um, you know, from a working capital fund standpoint, that would be making sure that we're charging our, our partners and our, and our components just for the time that they're using that particular service. But how do we be, be more agile on you know, that managing of dollars that you might not necessarily know how they're going to be spent the, the next month? So you know, change, changes to business processes is, is, is a huge play here. It's interesting the way you talk about the allocation of costs and, and, and as well as the business process for engineering. You should, the, the theory at least, right, and maybe this is different for the secret layer because we don't have that obviously look into it, it should cost you less than if you had to keep it in-house. So when you had the Microsoft Office on your classified network, it cost you X, but now it's in the cloud, it should cost you X minus, That's or at least you'll get more capabilities for the same price. Is that what you're finding so far? I know it's still early. I think it's still early, but but the, the way I characterize it is, is in in large part it's it's cost avoidance. So 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 it's, it's changing your cost profile. And, and I, but but I do think your your point about getting more for your dollars is 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 perfectly correct. You know, particularly true for the capabilities that Microsoft brings with Office 365 and, and Azure, and the capabilities that you know the commercial cloud services bring with, with Amazon. They're bringing a lot of the capabilities that they've developed in, in on the unclassified environments and the IC and then by extension DHS is benefiting from the investment by those companies and we're we're buying back the certainly the time that we use them but we're not making those big upfront upfront investments in R&D and implementation uh, our service providers are are making those uh, investments and and our costs to adopt and leverage them are certainly less to do that from an avoidance standpoint uh, as, as as we go as we go forward, one of the things that I've noticed over the last you know five or seven years of talking with CIOs like yourself about cloud is that's the real benefit of the cloud. It's not this cost savings that I think people thought about back in you know 2011 2010, but it's really hey that for that dollar I'm getting so much more for that dollar than I used to. Do you find that that's really the biggest driver for you guys to get to the cloud more quickly? You talked about taking more advantage of some of the eyesight capabilities. Your, your cost may not change too much, may go down a little, may go up a little, but really it's it's what you're getting for that dollar. Is that the biggest driver? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. You know, that, that ability to leverage capability much faster uh, is, is the huge driver to, to adopt those, the, those, those shared services. Dave, I want to talk uh, about machine learning a little bit, but let's first take a quick break. When we come back, we'll jump back into uh, some of those priorities. My guest is Dave Bottom, the Chief Information Officer of the Homeland Security Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Dave Bottom, the Chief Information Officer of the Homeland Security Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. David, last segment, we were going through some of your priorities. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was this idea of make sure when we go to shared services, we have the right instrumentation. Once you put a finer point on that, what do you mean by that? Because I think shared services is one of those terms that we all get, but you guys are, are tr- maybe looking at it maybe a little differently or, or at least ensuring that, that it works for you in a different way. As we adopt shared services, we really think about it in, in terms of you know how are we knitting together or, or integrating those services in a way that delivers a functionality to, to, to the analyst or, or, or to the operator. So if you're looking at an application that, like we all do, and, and there's a, an issue with the application, you, you didn't get the result that you were you were looking for, or it's or it's down, or, or just just not working. You know the challenge then back to us as the overall service provider is or service integrator is. Well, we got to figure out what's wrong. So, you know, from an instrumentation standpoint, 
you know, working with our, our eyesight providers or, or, or other providers in terms of is the component or service that you're providing, uh, is, is it working or not? So, you know, having that instrumentation in, in place and being able to tie all that together to enable much faster fault isolation, like, like where, where is the problem or, or problems, and then figuring out the, the most efficient way to restore service is, is really a, a focus area for us. So, you know, something that's easier to do when you have control of everything, uh, harder to do as, as you're, you know, using uh, services that, 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 are, that others are providing. So making sure we have the visibility, things in place to do that rapid fault isolation and then, and then service restoration. Can you talk a little bit about how you're doing that? Is it a dashboard? Is it a software tool or what? It's both. It's, it's really making sure that as we work with the providers, we have the appropriate you know, application programming interfaces or, or alerts that if a service is down, that we're getting that alert into our operations center. Our, our intelligence enterprise network operations center is actually in, down in Stennis, Mississippi. So it's a nice benefit to have people there 24-7. You know, my job is to make sure that we have the right alerts going to that center. The other thing you mentioned at the same time was the move into machine learning and how that's really going to play a big role. Maybe talk a little bit about what you're doing with machine learning, and that will lead us down a path to a data conversation, I'm sure. It's hard to separate the two. I, I think you need to get, get your data correct and then the right architecture. So, so a lot of conversation, of, of course, around data architecture and, and, and how that enables machine learning. So... To start with why we're doing machine learning is, is really to, to enable our analysts to detect things that they weren't able to before. I don't believe our analysts or our operators are any different than, than anybody else's. There's a lot of data to look at. It's not always, it's not always intuitive how you know, different data sets uh, in, interrelate. So from that you know, big data conversation about you know, what is correlation versus causality, you know, we're employing machine learning to certainly get us to the correlation piece and then and then enable our analysts to, to figure out what where, where the causality is well what, what is causing that that correlation so when you know we, we detect this activity or pattern uh, in, in, in one aspect of, of operations that has we, we notice it correlates to a an event that we, we need to go look at so you get the correlation so we need to make that correlation process happen much faster to enable our analysts and operators to work on that that, that causality piece. A lot of times when you talk to people in the intelligence world about machine learning, and they, they, I get the back and forth with them a little bit about, oh, we've been doing that for years. This is not really new technology. This is not emerging technology or cutting-edge technology. Is there something different about machine learning for you guys today than you know last month, last week, last year? So I think the new things is, is really this employment of models. So, so within the DHS space, you know, taking a, a model, and, and really what that is is software that – captures a, an analyst's knowledge or experience in, in a digital form. So that's really that model is the key to machine learning. So as, as we're feeding that model data, um, and that's, that's the model that's, that's kicking out the pattern or event uh, that, that should be queued up for another analyst's attention. With, without that type of capability, you know, that's really going to be hard for our a- analysts and operators to, to focus on, the, on the, the most urgent thing, the, the most critical thing at, at that particular point in, point in time. So it's really new, uh, but but certainly it's now more in the realm of the possible as as we adopt the services that the IC is offering to to be able to do that in in a much more aggressive way than than we were able to in the, in the past. A lot of times I hear that analysts are the ones that are pushing you forward or really asking for the new technologies. Are you uh, the type of person that 
gets them their technology sooner than later? Or, or are you the one who's like, well, hold on, we need to test it out? Like, like, how does that work? Because I think an analyst is someone who wants to be on the front end of everything. And, you know, oh, well, how can I use this machine learning model? How can that work? Give me a sense of the back and forth that you have to kind of balance. You know, the unique thing about DHS is, you know, we're as opposed to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, for example, is that we we deal a lot with people data. And and a lot of that data, of course, might have U.S. persons information in it. So we need to strike the balance between uh, what, what our analysts want to do and certainly what uh, is permissible from, from a legal and, and privacy and civil liberty standpoint, and then what can the technology do. So I am of the event that, you know, we, we need to make sure that uh, we're getting our analysts what they need when, when they need it. Uh, we're, but we also need to make sure that we're doing that in a policy-compliant way and, and within, a, with, within a legal way. So, so the strategy there is to find those areas of common concern and overlap between our, our oversight colleagues and in our mission colleagues. Data is a great example of that. Everybody wants quality data. Uh, our, our oversight teammates want to make sure the data is, is, is quality, right? So it's current, it's actionable, it's accurate. Our analysts want the same thing. Our analysts want to get to a particular outcome, and, and our privacy and civil liberties and legal folks want to get them to that particular outcome. So facilitating the, the relationship between the, the, our, our mission analysts and, and our oversight colleagues is certainly a, a privilege of, of ours to do within the CIO's office. So that's, that's how we keep, keep that conversation going. We want to make sure that we're equipping our folks to, to stay ahead of the threat. Do you guys have a chief privacy officer that kind of lives in your office as well, the CIO's office, or someone who lives in the OIA generally? The department has a chief privacy officer. Right, you guys have actually one of the best ones for, for the department-wide, but I was thinking more yeah, just and internally. We, we do. So with, a, with an Office of Intelligence Analysis, we, we do have a privacy officer. Each of the components also has a component privacy officer. And then, you know, in addition there, each of the components in the department and INA has our legal counsel. And uh, the department also has a, you know, civil rights, civil liberties office. Part of my responsibilities in helping the undersecretary execute the information sharing part of the job is to facilitate those discussions, right? So make sure that we, we're balancing the mission requirements with our oversight requirements with the technology. So that's the the really interesting part of the job, you know, from from my perspective. You use the term interesting. I was going to say challenging, but but I'll go with what you say since you do it every day. The other piece of this is around, let's say, data and analysis more broadly. We talked a little bit about machine learning. Maybe talk a little bit about the data analysis piece from a tools perspective, from an analytical perspective. How are you helping those analysts, those operators kind of get make better use of the data above and beyond maybe machine learning? So we're spending an awful lot of time on the data side. So as you can imagine, within within the department, you know, we, we still have a lot of data within in, in their own silos. But however, if you're going to do machine learning or effective machine learning, I haven't found a machine learning algorithm yet that doesn't require the, the data to be in at least one physical or, or logical place. So how do we strike the balance between the, the costs and time associated with moving data from one silo to a centralized place where it can be, be compared is, is an area of, of significant interest for us and, and investment for us. So, you know, what's this, the balance between a federated data architecture and a centralized data architecture for uh, machine learning to, to be able to occur uh, is a significant area for us. So the, the tools actually that we're looking at investment-wise are, are, are in that trade space. So as you can imagine, if you're doing uh, machine learning, at least from a, you know, a query standpoint, you're, we're trying to answer a query across multiple data sets. 
one way to do that is, well, let's, let's make sure that the data is, is following a common set of standards. As you can imagine, you know, getting folks to agree on those standards and getting those standards implemented, you know, that, that could be a long process. So how do, is there a way that we can automate that, use software to get us to the outcome much quicker than if we were having to go back and, and retrofit our, our data sets with, with different standards? Do you guys currently have a federated data lake data environment, or is it more centralized? And from an intelligence perspective, that's the other balance area that, again, analysts want you to be, well, if it's all centralized, I can get to it much quicker. Yeah, but there's these reasons why it's not. How do you kind of overcome that challenge? The department is, you know, by and large, as as you would guess, a a federated uh, data architecture. Each of the components has, you know, their own data architecture perfectly correct to make sure that, you know, they're, they're managing the data in support to, to enable the components mission, so that, that makes perfect sense. However, as, as you can imagine, you know, to answer some questions, we want to be able to bring those different data sets together. So the track we're on is you know, a hybrid. You know, what we're trying to find out find right now is what's the sweet spot between questions that need to be answered with a centralized you know, data lake, or data lake is probably the, the right term here, then what, what are the questions that could be answered uh, most efficiently in a, in a federated data, data architecture? So, so, so we have both. To your point, you're right. I mean, analysts need to be able to answer questions, and some of those questions need, need to be answered by bringing, bringing the data together. And you mentioned the third piece of the puzzle, if you will, to this entire Office of Intelligence and Analysis is data sharing. And that also creates more challenges because as you want to share that data, state and local or with other parts of the IC, how do you kind of bring all that data together and then share it out? I imagine the sharing happens after you've been to those silos and, and taken what or, or, or being given access to what you're allowed to have. I think that's, that's the next part. So does, right. does the data sharing piece, how, where does that play in this strategy, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. So it certainly goes back to the machine learning you know, piece of it. In terms of the decisions and for, for data sharing, uh, and go back to the safeguarding conversation. You know, let, Let's make sure that as we share data, we're doing it in a way that's consistent with why the data was acquired in the first place. So all of the data that the department acquires is is documented under privacy impact assessments or, or, or PIAs. So you know those dictate how data can be used once it's acquired by, by the department. So a large part of the sharing decision then is, well, are we sharing it for, for a reason that's consistent with why we acquired it in the first place? Part of the use then becomes, well, what analytics are going to be run on it and how are the results, what other data sets are going to be used in, in, with those analytics, and then how are we going to manage the, the, the results. So that's the conversation that we have between the mission folks, our legal and oversight partners, and the technologists in, in, in order to get to, to the mission outcome that, that we're looking for. And just real quick, you mentioned PIAs, uh, Privacy Impact Assessments, correct? Yes, sir. Just making sure we don't get lost in our acronyms. Dave, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can uh, finish up our conversation, talk maybe about innovation, talk maybe about cybersecurity. My guest is Dave Bottom, the Chief Information Officer of the Homeland Security Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Dave Bottom, the Chief Information Officer of the Homeland Security Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. Dave, before break, we're talking a lot about data, a lot about data and, and, and how machine learning is impacting the way you guys use data. That, to me, is part of this idea of innovation, right? Is when analysis or an operator comes in and says, hey, 
I want to use machine learning. I want to use it this way. And, and you go through the privacy side and civil liberty side and on the cybersecurity side. Okay, go, go do it, right? You, once you kind of jump through those hoops, if you will. How do you, though, as CIO, also promote innovation? It comes down to two things, uh, incentives and who takes the risk. So, so from my perspective as the CIO, you know, my job is to provide the incentives to folks to, to do the innovative things. And, and by innovative, you know, let, let's do something differently or something new that, that we haven't done before. And then take, I'm, I'm the one that takes the risks if it doesn't, if it doesn't work out so great. So that's really, the, I think, the, the, the key to success is, is enabling folks to be able to do something differently or something new, give them the incentive to do it. And then I assume the risk if, if it doesn't work out. And the fact is, because you're moving to the cloud, that's also making those risks much lower because you can spin something up, test it out, take it down if it doesn't work. I mean, is that one of the other benefits of moving to, to the IC cloud? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a huge benefit. So, so that upfront in terms of um, being able to add capacity when, when you need to. Um, so, so we have deployed analytics where, where in the past we have, whoops, we, we, we made a mistake. We, we got to go buy 15 new servers. Recently, we actually this actually happened. We might not have done the done the math the best way. It, it would have been an expensive fix to go go buy additional hardware, but we were able actually to just to, to go leverage the next biggest instance on on, on Amazon to to compensate. So you know, much easier you know from a from an implementation, and it, and it does change the, the the risk calculus where you know maybe you don't have to do so much homework up front. You can iterate. And, and learn and go forward. And I imagine the cost as well was much lower too. I mean, asking Amazon for, as you said, more instances may have cost you X amount of dollars per instance, but to buy a new server, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the cost allocation, right? So if, if you're buying a server, you're, you're you know, the upfront, make this up, $10,000 investment, you know, the application developer of your would have designed their application to maximize that $10,000 and, you know, keep the application up all of the time, regardless if somebody's using it or not. And the shared services or, or cloud environment, really what you want to do is develop the application with, so when you're not using it, you're spinning the instance down, and, and and that's where the cost avoidance comes from. Do you get a sense that your boss and your boss's boss are pretty open to taking smart risks? What kind of message kind of goes back up and down the chain around that? Absolutely. So so you know from the undersecretary's perspective, it's it, it's lean forward and, and execute mission, and um, you know do do the things that 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 are 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 in the best interest of of the analyst and the operator. As, as, as we're going forward. You offered a good example around the deployment of analytics and, and, and maybe, as you said, your calculations weren't perfect. Any other kind of recent innovations or risks that you would maybe could highlight that would say, hey, here's a good example that maybe others could, could, could learn from? I mean, we've actually in- implemented a project where I can't talk about specifics necessarily, but you know, we're actually going to move a lot of data and then you know, move it to, to, to our partners, which would have been prohibitive to do in the past, but it's easy to do now as in the spirit of, you know, stitching services together. So what's really new here, I think, for folks is, you know, being knowledgeable about the services that are out there, you know, both in the unclassified environment and the traditional, you know, commercial spaces, you know, what what is there and, and can be used. And then, you know, of course, then then what is available in, in the um, in, in the intelligence community. All right, I appreciate the example. I know it's hard sometimes it's hard, to, but... to bring them together. One thing that kind of goes through all of this that we've been talking about is the workforce. Do they have the right skills? Are you able to train them, keep them up to date? Maybe talk a little bit about how you're doing that. What, what kind of a plan do you have around training and, and workforce, if you will, reskilling? I think it goes back to having a roadmap. 
So not not you know 52 years, but but certainly a you know two to three year roadmap in terms of here are the things that we want to do, here are the technologies that that we or business practices that we want to employ, and then going to to figure out okay, so who should who should we be tapping on the shoulder to to learn those new skills? I'm a huge fan of certifications, so. The first thing I look for if, if we're adopting a new technology or service is, well, can I get somebody certified in that? And then what's the role I could get that person certified in? So, you know, we can have, one, for, for one, for the employee, it's, it's a great resume bullet. For the, the leadership team, it's, it's proof of competency, right? So, you know, folks actually know or, or have been schooled in things like the things that we want to adopt as, as we're going forward. Dave, unfortunately, we are out of time for today. This has been a, just a fascinating conversation. So let me thank my guest. Dave Bottom is the Chief Information Officer of the Homeland Security Department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 